he was challenged by someone with regard to salvation by grace through faith alone. And the question or the challenge was basically, and this won't be an exact quote because I don't have it written here, but uh, the question was and the challenge was, but if what you're saying, Martin, is true, that salvation is by grace through faith alone and it's not of works like you're saying, then won't that by, by necessary result mean that everyone who embraces that will just go out and do whatever they want to do? And his response to that question or that challenge was, exactly. Of course, everyone who embraces salvation by grace through faith alone will go out and do whatever they want to do. Of course. He said, but when you understand the scriptures, what's going to happen what the Spirit does, what the Holy Spirit does in people when they come to that faith in Christ that I'm talking about is that he changes them and gives them a new heart and the result is that they go out and do what they want to do, but what they want to do is flowing out of a new heart with all of the new desires and the new longings that are now Christward. They are not Satan word, as it were. So it's a really dramatic um, sta uh, uh, statement or challenge and response that I think is very important because it captures the idea very well. Which in a very way, real way brings us to our text this morning, Hebrews chapter 3. <coughs> because I say that because it is interesting that oftentimes if we're not careful, we will read the statements that I would argue are not arguing for law and the... And, and, and the centrality of law, we will oftentimes misunderstand them as having as the central emphasis the law, but they are not, not by any stretch of the imagination. And so I want to, and we're going to see as we work our way through the text here this morning, that if salvation is by grace through faith alone, then our understanding of and our relation to and our response to the law is radically different by necessity. And more importantly, by the change in our hearts caused by the Spirit. Well, if we're going to understand the text that we're in this morning, which is chapter 3, verse 12, through the end of the chapter, we're going to have to jump to the beginning, and we're going to start reading at the very beginning. So jump to chapter 3, verse 1, if you would. But before we start, why don't we have a word of prayer? Lord, I want to thank you for the reality, the truth of salvation that is not of us, as is so clearly screamed out in the scriptures, is apart from the law, is apart from our works. Romans chapter 3. It is by grace through faith alone. All throughout Romans. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace we are saved through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. And so Lord, this morning, on this day that we remember what your Holy Spirit did mightily in Martin Luther and those who came after him. <coughs> this morning we rejoice in the reality that we are not saved by what we do. It is not up to the one who runs or works, but it is up to the one that shows mercy. And so we rejoice not just in your grace, but we rejoice in you, the giver of grace. We don't just rejoice in mercy, but we rejoice in the giver of mercy. And so help us this morning as we hear your word that we will be reminded, yes, there is a call in our lives, and it's an important call. But Lord, I pray you'll help us to hear that the real call in our lives is to remember you. So help us. In your name I pray. Amen. Starting in chapter 3, verse 1. The writer of Hebrews writes this, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all of God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of the house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were spoke to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Therefore, 
as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years, therefore I was provoked with that generation and said they always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And then the passage we're going to be looking at today. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt, led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Now, Lord willing, next week we will pick up in chapter 4, verse 1, because this, this discussion by the writer of Hebrews will continue into chapter 4 and beyond. So, But we've got to break it down into handleable, handleable chunks, if that's all right with you. <clears throat> so we're going to be looking at 12 and following this morning. Building off of the, the text that we've seen so far, what we find in 12 and following is a, a almost, not quite, but almost an ordained an inspired commentary on verses 7 through 11 that we looked at last week. I mentioned that last week as we proceed forward. More importantly, though, however, what we have in 12 and following is that the writer of Hebrews is taking this passage out of nine, Psalm 95, and he is going to, in 12, the end of the chapter, he is going to say that those of you who are in the church, the New Testament church, you need to understand that the story of the of the Hebrews in the wilderness is analogous to the church today. It's important that we recognize right off the bat that he's saying, although they're not necessarily parallel, there's certainly distinctives that are different between them. It is a good and appropriate and tight analogy. It's analogous of the church today. We said it last week as an introduction. What we have in chapter 3, verse 7 and following, is we have this uh, very real introduction and description and explanation that the Hebrews as wanderers in the wilderness are analogous to the church today as being a wilderness community today, just like they were then. We are the new. The church is the new wilderness community. We are the church in the wilderness. We have not yet entered our rest. We've talked about that before, but I want to remind you. Our rest is something yet to come. And that becomes very important because rest is a time when we no longer have struggles with what? Sin and Satan and temptation and all the rest of that, right? When we come into our rest, when we enter into our rest, that will be a day when, when we, we will no longer, as 2 Corinthians 5 says, we will no longer walk by faith, but we will now walk by sight. But today is a day of walking by faith. Faith in what God has revealed. Faith in what God has said in His Scriptures. And so this is the time we find ourselves in. We are not the church at rest. We are the church in the wilderness. It's very important that we grapple with that in our thinking because if we don't grapple with that in our thinking, then all of this will make no sense. Which is why he says, after going through chapter 3, verses 7 through 11, and referencing Psalm 95 there, he brings it back to today immediately in verse 12, and he says what? Take care, brothers. This is not merely a wandering through a very important historical time in biblical history. He says, in effect, the reason why I said chapter 3, verses 7 through 11 out of Psalm 95 is for you and for me. 
This is some of that exhortation that is so important. Take care, brothers. And he goes on and he says, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Now, what he does here in verse 12 is he takes it to its final conclusion. I don't know if you've picked up on that yet, but he takes this this concern, the writer of Hebrews' concern, and obviously God's concern here, that it is possible that someone could have a wandering away, or if I may go back to what the Scriptures have to say earlier, um, that, for example, um, verse 6, that it's possible that we don't hold fast our confidence, our boasting, and our hope. It's possible that we could... Going back to chapter 2, not pay much closer attention, verse 1, to what we've heard and as a result drift away. It is possible that we may not escape, verse three, ver- chapter 3, verse 3, if we escape so great a salvation. So what he's saying in chapter 3, verse 12 is, Take care, brothers. Watch out. Be careful. You get the idea of take care. If I may use this illustration, Abby, this last Wednesday, right? This last Wednesday, Abby and I went for a trail run and an asphalt run and an asphalt trail and dirt trail run, which was more rock than anything else, uh, in Valley Forge um, over Mount Misery and Mount Joy. Mount, Mount Joy wasn't so bad but mount misery was rocks everywhere no matter where you stepped you were on rocks a lot of pointed ones a lot of big ones a lot of small ones abby you tell me if you'd just taken a moment and not paid attention what would have happened fallen right on your face right and gotten injured it happened in a second wouldn't have every single step you had to pay attention You couldn't waver in your focus one moment or you're going to be on the ground. That's the idea that the writer of Hebrews is trying to communicate here. When he says, take care, brothers. It's not just, you know, watch out. It's every moment, every step, every second, constantly. There is pitfalls everywhere. The pitfalls are literally every moment of every day. There's never a safe time. Why? Because this is the time of the wilderness. This is not the time of rest. You're taking another step. It's a step of struggle. It's a step of difficulty. It's a step full of opposition. The evil one is opposing you every single step you take. Your your sinful heart is warring against you every step you take. Temptation is not just around the bend. It's at the next step, the next footfall. Temptation is there. This is the time of wilderness wandering. And that's the, tri- the communication he's trying to give us here when he says, take care, brothers. There's never a moment when you, when you can be carefree. Take care. And the argument that the writer of Hebrews is giving us here is if we're not taking care, then what we just saw, chapter 2, verse 1, chapter 2, verse 3, chapter 3, verse 1, and many other places throughout the book of Hebrews is is immediately beginning to flourish and it's not a good thing take care brothers why lest there be in any of you and then he takes you to the final conclusion lest there be in any of you an evil unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living god now it's very easy to hear the passage and miss what the passage is really saying firstly he is clearly saying in this text in in this verse, verse 12, he's talking about ultimate apostasy. You can hear it pretty clearly in all the terms he gives, if you really listen. An evil, unbelieving heart 
leading you to fall away from the living God. There's the three major statements. An evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. So he's talking about the ultimate apostasy of of turning completely away from God himself. But we must not isolate his statement in verse 12 from everything else that just came as well as what we'll see in the future in the book. Because he's not just identifying the final conclusion of the matter. He's identifying all the other things he talked about before as steps to this conclusion. So again, in the context, he talks about being all the more diligent so that you don't get a cold or hard heart, so that you don't drift away. He's talking about the initial things as well. He's talking about, as we just read, drifting away in verse uh, verse 1 of chapter 2, neglecting verse 3, chapter 3, being careful to consider because if we don't consider, we can can get in, uh, yeah, chapter 3, we can get into trouble very quickly. Brings us to chapter 2. Uh, 3 verse 12 again warning us of apostasy now it is important though before we get off of verse 12 we understand what apostasy according to Hebrews really is see we think about apostasy as someone who at one point in time says I believe in Jesus Christ Jesus Christ is my redeemer he's my savior I love Jesus I am a Christian I am redeemed I'm heaven bound I love Jesus and then suddenly later on somewhere down the path That person is somebody who says, Jesus is nothing. I'm not interested. I have no desire for Jesus, and I wish you'd just all shut up. I don't believe in God. I don't believe that there is life hereafter. I don't believe in any of that. And we typically think of that as apostasy, right? Does that make sense? No, it is. That's how we think of apostasy. That's not the way the the book of Hebrews describes apostasy, although it is. We need to understand that's an extreme scenario of apostasy. Quite to the contrary, the writer of Hebrews describes people in context. Who is he describing? Earlier, right before verse 12, who is he describing? The Jews wandering in the wilderness. It's important if we're going to get what he's meaning here in verse 12 is that we look to the Jews in the wilderness. The Jews in the wilderness, did they think that they were apostates? If you would have addressed them as, as apostates, do you think they would have bought that? Not even close. They're not apostates. They got the pillar of fire and smoke, right? They're eating the manna. They're drinking the water that came out of the rock. Generally, generally speaking, are they following Moses or are they not? Generally speaking, are they? Oh, yes, they are. Of course they are. Every day they get up and Moses starts walking and they do what? They walk, right? If they have, if they have issues and they're griping, they go to Moses to correct them or to later on to the other judges he sets up to oversee that, right? So, I mean, generally speaking, you'd say they seem like they're doing all right, are they? No, they're not doing all right. You'd say, generally speaking, they're not apostates. They're people struggling. Right? We would say, yeah, yeah, these, these Jews, these Hebrews, they, they're, they're people who are struggling. But not apostates. That's a little extreme, isn't it? No. See, we don't make the definitions. God does. And what God is saying is that that's exactly who these Jews were. These Jews were apostates. How do we know that? Well, it's because the apostates don't enter into their rest. You realize that? Apostates don't enter into their rest. And what do we see? Verse 11. As I swore in my wrath, what? What does he say? They shall not enter the rest. They shall not enter my rest. So when we see verse 12, take care, brothers, lest in any of you 
uh, there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, it's important that we see it in its context. You see, Frank, I've got to be honest with you. Frankly, I think that for the most part, the Jews in the wilderness would probably fit pretty well in a lot of church settings. Do you realize that? They'd probably fit pretty well. Murmuring, rebelling, complaining, not trusting, not remembering. Does that sound familiar? I think they would fit pretty well. I would argue when he says, take care, brothers, lest any of you be an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. He is saying some very important things. And he, what he's doing is he's tying it back to chapters 1 and 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. You see, to be someone who has an evil, unbelieving heart, and of course we all struggle with an evil heart, but succumbing to it. We all struggle with lack of belief, but the idea is succumbing to it. And of course, falling away from the living God. What does he mean by all that? Well, he means, if I may present it to you, chapter 1, what he's referring to is that you find other things more valuable than Christ. That's what he's talking about. When you find and cling to and hold to other things more valuable than Jesus. Now, as good Christians, we've got to clarify that even more. Because in our, in our natural way of thinking, we will say, well, I'm not looking to anything else to get me to heaven. I'm not looking to anything else to save me, so obviously Christ is supreme, right? No. Because he means to be all in all, right? If all things are from him, through him, to him, to him be glory forever, the picture is that, the, or the idea is, quite to the contrary, that that means that he is, Hebrews chapter 1, Greater than all. Early part of chapter 3. Greater than all once again. He is seen as looked to, remembered, considered, dwelt on, clung to as the greatest of all. First place. Only place maybe even. I would present that, it, again, if we went back, if let me go back one more time, if you'll bear with me, Ver, chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore we must pay, pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. Again, we talked about that already, talking about Jesus Christ. Pay much closer attention to what we've learned about Jesus, or the natural result is we drift away. That drifting away is knowing and remembering other things, other people, whatever the case may be, greater than, more valuable than, being clinging to other things more tightly than to Jesus in the fabric of our lives. And what he's warning in chapter 3, verse 12, is to be careful to take care that that doesn't happen. Take care. Now, here's the question. The question is, how do we know if perhaps we are falling into the category of having an evil, unbelieving heart leading us to fall away from the living God? How do we know? How do we evaluate that? It's a really good question. How do we evaluate if our heart is hot after Christ, or if it is hot after something else, or plural other things. How do we know? Well, verse 13 tells us a way that we can know. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It's one of the ways where it's described that we can identify, evaluate, as it were, where we're at spiritually. What's going on spiritually in our lives? What is it? What does he say? It's pretty simple. What does he say there? 
encourage or exhort one another every day. And then what does he say? As long as it is called today. In other words, tomorrow's not the day. Next day is not the day. Next week is not the day. It'll be the day when you get there. But today's the day. And so the, the call of verse 13, and in effect, he's saying the opposite of verse 12 is what? That we're exhorting one another today. And tomorrow, it'll be today, and then we'll be exhorting one another today again. Now, please, again, as I started out the text, it doesn't mean that we got to say, okay, God commands i got to go out and exhort, so I better start exhorting. That's not what he's saying. Because the whole point of Hebrews is remember, remember what? Christ. Remember Christ for who he really is. And when you remember Christ for who he really is, guess what is going to be burning within you? Christ is going to be burning within you. Remember what the quote I just mentioned from Luther? You do whatever you want to do, right? Of course you will. But if you're remembering Christ, as revealed in the Scriptures, dwelling on Him, recalling Him, meditating on Him, you know what's going to be in your heart? Because the Spirit will be at work in you? Christ. And the evidence that Christ is at work in you is that Christ will flow from you. Does that make sense? The evidence that Christ is at work in you will be that Christ will flow from you. This is not, the law says you need to exhort one another, so get going exhorting. And by the way, the exhortation here that's being talked about is not exhorting you about the law. That's where I really wanted to point out is that it's not exhorting you about making sure that people are doing the law. You know, exhortation typically is, can you failed and you need to correct it? That's what you think of exhortation, right? That's not, that's not what it is. It's exhorting one another with regard to Jesus day after day. Well, still called today. You, you sense the urgency there, don't you? Exhorting one another towards Jesus. Well, still today. And if Jesus is in us, you know what's going to happen? We're going to find ourselves exhorting people toward Jesus. But if Jesus isn't, guess what we're going to exhort people toward? Everything else. Everything else. We're going to be evangelists. It's just about all the wrong things. Aren't we? We're going to be teachers. We're just going to teach about all the wrong things. We're going to be signs. We're just going to be signs pointing to all the wrong things. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. In other words, what his call is to minister to one another what you have in you so that we are together as the wilderness community, the wandering community in the wilderness, we are encouraging, exhorting people to remember our Redeemer. Probably a better way to put it, if I could put it as comfortably as possible or as closely as possible to the wilderness wandering, it'd be like this. Let's say Andrew and I are hanging out a little bit, and I hear in Andrew a little murmur. Right? Or maybe I hear in Andrew a little gripe. Or maybe there's a little hint of rebellion. And I say, hey, Andrew, turn around. Turn around. And he turns around and I say, you see the pillar? I want to remind you of God's love. I want to remind you of God's love. Or as we're out there, it's morning, and we're bending over and we're griping. And I hear Andrew griping, and, or maybe he hears me griping. And we're bending over, and guess what we're picking up? picking up manna and he hears me grumbling a little bit and he says Steve stop stop where'd the manna come from how'd it get there I just want to remind you what is he doing 
He's exhorting me, isn't he? To do what? To remember Jesus. It's not an exhortation. Hey, the law says it's pillar. Pillar. Remember the pillar. Right? To remember. Or maybe it is. You think this is hopeless? Andrew says to Steve, you think it's hopeless? Do you remember the crossing of the Red Sea? Remember what, remember what God did? Remember that? What is he doing? He's trying to help me protect me from the deceitfulness of sin that is in us all. That's the picture he's presenting here in verse 13. But you know what? Here's what happens too often. We hear somebody grumble, complain, hint at it. And today what we do is the same thing that the people, the children of Israel did, the Hebrews did. Instead of reminding one another, speaking the truth because they love the person of truth, they began to join in on the what? On the grumbling and the complaining. And they're fueling this evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. And it's deceitful, isn't it? Because it didn't feel, it, it feels like it's just a part of them, right? But, but the big part is, I'm out here in the wilderness. Uh, surely, I, I, didn't stay, I didn't stay in Egypt, right? I didn't stay there. So I'm doing all right, aren't I? No. I'm out there in the wilderness with an evil, unbelieving heart. Just because I left Egypt doesn't mean that I'm doing all right. But it feels like I'm generally speaking good. No, there's an evil, unbelieving heart. Why? Because you forgot my God. The urgency is so clear here today while it's still today. And then he goes on to verse 14, for we have come to share in Christ. And again, we see that qualifier like we saw before. If indeed we hold our original confidence firm until the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. We just described what it was like to harden our hearts in the day of rebellion. Those 40-year wanderings is very clear. But yet, at the same time, very deceptive. Again, it wasn't, if I make this belabor the point, it wasn't that they... forgot the law necessarily. It was they forgot the God of the law. Even though he was present with them, they weren't focused on the God of the law. They weren't focused on the God who is merciful, the God who is gracious, the God who loved them. Their focus wasn't there. Their focus was elsewhere. Verse 16 to the end of the chapter then, for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? And it's very important that we hear what he says here. Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? Well, of course it was. Now, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that Caleb and Joshua weren't faithful. All here is just a broad-brushed statement. Because let's be honest, Caleb and Joshua are the only two that went in. <laughs> the rest, all, all the rest of the adults died. So functionally speaking, it was basically all. Does that make sense? For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? That's a dramatic and powerful statement. They left slavery. They walked away from slavery. And yet, in walking away from slavery, they didn't walk to the living God. The evidence is very clear. They did not walk to the living God. They did not walk with the living God at all. Why? Because they had a sinful, unbelieving heart that left the living God, that fell away. It is striking to see verse 16, again, the dramatic picture of the vast majority, all but two, all but two. 
we hear about the faithful remnant, and it's striking. And I got to be honest with you, at some point it is terrifying. The picture of how small the faithful remnant was, and appropriately so. It gives us the picture of the urgency, the care, the immediacy of being after it. Today while still today. Or as long as it's called today. Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? Verse 17, and with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned whose body fell in the wilderness? And the answer is obviously, well, yeah, of course it was. And they did fall in the wilderness. Verse 18, and to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? Now, it's important that we don't stop at verse 18, but it's clear in verse 18, <coughs> he swore that they would not enter his rest. Who was it? Those who were disobedient. And the answer is, of course, yeah, because it's, it's in the form of a question. But to the, and to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient? And the answer is, oh, yeah, of course, it was one, those who were disobedient. But it begs the question, why were they disobedient? Were they disobedient? Absolutely they were. Did they disobey against God? Repeatedly they did. Characteristically they did. But the question that remains is why? And verse 19 answers it. So we see they were unable to enter what? Because of unbelief. You see, the disobedience is fueled by unbelief. And the deceptiveness of unbelief is that you can think you believe when you, when you don't. The deceptiveness comes out so clear in this passage that, that you could not believe and yet think you do believe. Because our understanding of belief is all wrong. Because, you see, the picture, the biblical picture of belief is someone who recognizes who God is, who recognizes who, who the Son is, who the Father is, who the Son is, who the Holy Spirit is, who recognizes who God is. And in recognizing who God is, he responds to the truth by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he is drawn to that God in worship, in submission, in humility. And gratefulness because of what he's receiving, what he did receive, and what he is receiving from God. And the result is that they find themselves because the Spirit changes their heart, that they do what? That they're diligent in seeking him. Not because the law demands, but because the Spirit has changed them. Those who are not in the category of the the, the Hebrews who died in the wilderness are those who recognize the beauty, if I may use the illustration, the beauty of the pillar of fire and the pillar of smoke. And they're enthralled with their God because the Spirit has done that in them. If you think about it, it makes sense, doesn't it? When the 12 spies go into the land out of Kadesh Barnea and they look out there at, at, at the land and everything that's there and they come back and the 10 say what? Yeah, they say there's good stuff there, right? So there's that hint, right? Yes, God's right. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. It's amazing. It's an amazing land. But. But there's giants there. And so they what? They fear. Cowards. They fear. They don't believe. Now they would say, well, of course I believe, right? I came all the way from Egypt, all the way up to Kadesh Barnea. Of course I believe in him. But I checked it out and this is an impossible situation. Does that sound familiar? How many of us have been there? Right? Missing out the reality of God, forgetting about the pillar of fire and smoke, forgetting about the, the rumbling God on top of Mount Sinai, 
forgetting about the Red Sea, forgetting about the plagues, forgetting about all the demonstrations of God in history and in their lives personally. But Caleb and Joshua went in, and they said, yeah, there's giants in the land, and yeah, there's big fortified cities. But God's promised, and God's a great God. God's a powerful God, and God's a promise-making, promise-keeping God, and he loves his people. Let's go take possession of the land. Isn't that what the two said? Why? What's the difference? What's the difference between the ten and the two? It's not primarily one followed the law, one didn't. One saw and knew God. Or two of them, I'm sorry. Saw and knew God, and ten didn't. Right? Ten cowered, right? They cowered because they were cowards. But they cowered because they were cowards because they didn't look to God. They didn't remember God. They didn't dwell on what God had promised. They didn't trust a God who keeps his promises, a God who's faithful, a God who's merciful and gracious to them. They didn't. But two said God has spoken. And in effect, they were saying, if God is for us, what? Who can be against us? That's the point. You see, they did not enter their rest, the ten and all the rest that died in the wilderness, did not enter their rest. Why? Because they disobeyed the law? No, yes, they were disobedient, but they were disobedient for a reason. And the reason is because they were people characterized by unbelief. And the deception of it is that sometimes it seems like we can be believers when we're not. Sometimes it seems like we can believe. In fact, oftentimes it seems like we can be believers when we're not. And we evaluate by all the wrong standards. Yeah, I'm flawed. Yeah, I'm struggling. Yeah, I, but generally speaking, I, I'm doing okay. It's not about that. It's about belief or unbelief. It's about what captures my heart, what doesn't. Do I have a new heart or do I not? Is the Spirit at work in me and is the evidence there that I love Jesus? Is the evidence there that the Spirit's at work, He has changed me, He is changing me, and He has promised to continue to change me. I am who I am because the Spirit is at work, because God loves me. And He's called me. And He saved me. See, ultimately, it's about belief versus unbelief. And that's exactly what He's driving. So we see that they were unable to enter. Why? Because they didn't perfectly keep the law? No. Had nothing to do with that. Because unbelief. And unbelief was on full display for anybody to see if they would just look. If they would just look. But the problem was everybody else around them was also of unbelief. And so they didn't see either. And so nobody was exhorting anybody. As a result, nobody was exhorting anybody. At least not Godwardly. Nobody was speaking. Nobody was ministering to anybody. Nobody was encouraging anybody. Nobody was saying, hey, look to the pillar. Nobody was saying those things. Except for, I suspect, Moses, Joshua, and Caleb. And by the way, we see that even later on in Joshua, right? At the end of Joshua, Caleb goes to, goes to Joshua at the end, and he says what? Hey, I want my land. It was promised me. God promised it. I want my land now. I'm 80-some years old, and I feel just as good as I felt then. Let me take my, take my land. There's, Phil there, there's Philistines in his land still. Giants. He said, God promised it. This is 87-year-old man takes, leaves, takes leave of, of Joshua and goes with probably just a few servants in comparison 
And the Bible only says one thing afterwards. It says, and then there was peace in the land. You know what that means, don't you? It means the last battle was fought. And the old man and his, and his servants, frankly, destroyed the Philistines on his land. Why? Because God promised. And Caleb's perspective is God promised. It's not about what I see. It's about what I don't see. It's about faith in the God who has promised. And I suspect all through Caleb's life, that's the way it was for Caleb. God's promised. Let's go. Let's go. I want to remind you God promised. I want to remind you who God is. I want to pr- remind you about his mercy. I want to remind you about his grace. I want to remind you of him. But the people didn't enter because they were unable to. And the reason why they were unable to is because of unbelief. The text is really quite clear, and, and it's a very strong exhortation to you and I both. It primarily is, do you believe? Are we really believers? There's not an accusation there. It's a question. It's not an accusation at all. It's just a question. Are we really believers? How do we know? Really important question. When we talked about how one of the couple of ways we can know, but the question is, how do you know you're a believer? So the scriptures tell us we can know. And it's by grace through faith alone, of course. It's not how well we run. But is belief real in you? Do we really believe? Do we? That's the question. Do we really believe? Is Christ, is God what percolates in us? Is God what what we find is our first and most important principles. Is our faith in Christ in a growing way by the power of the Holy Spirit the evidence of our lives? It was interesting. I went to a Reformation conference yesterday and the guy pulled out his license driver's license, he held it up, and he, he said, uh, what does this tell you about you? And somebody said, well, it tells me who I am. That doesn't tell me, it tells everybody else who I am. And he said, yeah, that's what it's supposed to do, but it doesn't. Because it doesn't say anything about being a Christian. It doesn't say anything about being a lover of Jesus. It tells your name. It says your birth date. It says your address. It may say your eye color and your hair color or as he said it, the hair color you used to have. Um, It may even say your weight. But it doesn't say anything at all about you being in Jesus. That's your true ID. That's your identification. And it changes everything. And when Jesus is your life, your identification, the result is that we find ourselves exhorting one another. We find ourselves clinging to, looking to, holding on to, reminding ourselves of, and reminding one another of. It happens. It just happens by God's grace. It's not something I got to go out today and say, I got to start exhorting people. It happens by the power of God in us. That's what the Spirit has promised to do. The concern of this text is that we actually do wrestle with. Do we have an evil, unbelieving heart that's falling away from the living God? Are we drifting? Or are we people who are clinging to Jesus? Are we people 
who will be in the wilderness but not enter our rest? Or are we people who enter our rest? Our only hope is that Jesus will work, that God will work in us, transforming us. So let us together cry out to Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, that he will do his work in us and transform us so that we will be the wilderness community that glorifies Christ and doesn't wander away. Shall we? Let's pray. <coughs> Lord, we are a people not unlike any other group of people who is gathering anywhere all over this world today. We are a small band of people, wandering people, during a wilderness time. And not unlike that wilderness people about 4,000 years ago, we are a people who need you. We are a people who need to have your spirit work in us because these are not things we can do. They just aren't. We recognize the command. But belief is something you give us. Belief is something you enable us to have because it's by grace through faith. And so, Lord, I pray you help us today. Work in us that we will be a, a small little band of wilderness wanderers who by the power of the Holy Spirit within us cling to you. So we exhort one another day by day, while still today, that we pay much more close attention to you. So we ask you to glorify yourself in this little band. Show your power. Help us that we look to you. In your name I pray. Amen.